we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to our podcast today. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Today we have a two-parter discussing two issues that are really important in different parts of the world, about as far apart as you could get, actually. One in the Southern Pacific and the Asia-Pacific region, or as we refer to it nowadays, the Indo-Pacific region, and the other uh, on the western border of Ukraine in the country of Moldova. We're going to start in the Indo-Pacific, and our guest is Charles Edel, who is the Australia chair at CSIS. How are you doing today, Charles? I'm doing just fine. I'm really pleased to be on, David. Well, we're really happy to have you here. We would like to talk about a subject that has been a bit of a running gag on uh, on Deep State Radio for a long time now, which is AUKUS. But uh, it started in a bit of a kerfuffle, which remains a kind of ongoing kerfuffle with the French, and uh, has gone on from there. And uh, some people consider it to be a big deal. Other people consider it to be a deal which is mostly in the distant future. We had a summit meeting of uh, the leaders of Britain and the United States and Australia last week on the west coast of the U.S. to discuss this. There were further agreements about what AUKUS would be and would look like. What's your verdict on this new collaboration post that meeting? How do I start by saying all the above? You just said Look, <laughs> it, it is a deal way in the future, but it's also a deal that starts materializing immediately in this year. Look, to kind of pull the thread back just a little bit, when this was announced to great fanfare and then fell like a thud when it first came out in September 2021, that was really because of the lack of coordination with the French, as you pointed out, uh, David. But this is backwards for how we normally do diplomacy and statecraft, right? Normally you figure something out and then you announce it. You don't announce it and then say, I hope we can figure out how this will proceed. So what happened was right in September, 2021, the leaders announced this and then said, we need 18 months to figure out 
how we're actually going to do it. So fast forward to this past week, uh, March, and the three leaders got together in San Diego, right at the naval base, backdrop of a Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarine, and they said, here's the deal that we're going to provide nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. The criticism, which you've already picked up on uh, in Australia and elsewhere, is if we have some major deterrence challenges right now with China, why are we signing up for a deal that might not materialize for another decade or so? And so I think what was the most surprising part about the announcement is that this is a phased deal, and the first phases of the deal start this year. So U.S. and British submarines are going to start showing up in Australia in greater number starting right now. Aussie shipbuilders are going to start coming to Groton, Connecticut, down to Virginia, so they can learn how to do this this year. But in the next two to three years, we're going to start sending a detachment of naval submarines, a naval submarine task force, to Western Australia, along with the Brits. And then we begin to get into the further out stages of this, right? We'll start selling at least three, maybe as many as five of our submarines to the Aussies. And then at the end of the deal, the Aussies will start building their own submarine, as will the Brits at the end of 24. So this is something that will start happening immediately, but then gets phased over time. I hope we're all alive to see that, because the building of submarines is the end of the 2040s, you said. So it's like 20, 20 years off. I mean, who knows if people will even use submarines at that point. But we'll get to that in a second. How come this thing was such a mess at the outset? Well... It was such a mess at the outset, I think, because the way that they conducted this was they really needed to do this in some secrecy, but they only gave a heads up to partners, uh, i.e. the French, who they were, the Australians were canceling an enormous submarine contract with, you know, the day before uh, or so. Uh, And so the French got uh, seriously ticked off at this, as you might imagine. Actually, they did something quite unprecedented. They recalled their ambassadors to both the U.S. and Australia. Uh, they've obviously put their ambassadors back uh, to those points, too. But so instead of talking about why the three countries were undertaking this, what the strategic benefit would be, probably what some of the challenges inherent were, instead, we had to deal with the fallout on the European side with a close ally of the U.S., the French. And then because of that, and because they were trying to figure out what this was, and it's quite challenging to figure that out, all three administrations basically were mum for the last 18 months straight. So we haven't heard a lot about this. Occasional statements from the White House, but this is the first time we've had the plan rolled out, and there are lots of parts to it. It does seem to shift a number of submarines into the Indo-Pacific and thereby change the sort of balance of power in that part of the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I will, uh, because I think this is actually the more interesting parts of the deal, right? I mean, like narrowly scoped, this looks like a deal that submarines will show up at some point. But I think the larger point here is kind of threefold. Number one, this is not only submarines, as President Biden said, this is the first initiative within AUKUS. And the bigger ones to come are kind of technological collaboration, be they in AI, cyber, quantum, uh, hypersonics and counter-hypersonics, but kind of working together to three nations to innovate and maybe even co-produce some of these things. A bigger benefit here, I think, strategically, no less from a jobs perspective, is the U.S. is not pumping out submarines fast enough. I mean, this is uh, an advantage that the U.S. has. We're 
kind of ahead on the underwater game. It keeps the Chinese and others guessing. We're supposed to be producing two attack class submarines per year, one boomer per year. Our shipyards are in a lot of trouble. We're not even producing that many. And so one of the things that's surprising about this deal is not only is the U.S. kind of ramping up investments in its industrial base, as is Australia, as is Britain, but the Aussies are actually going to invest in the U.S. shipbuilding capacities because we have the ability to produce these quickly enough. So we're going to kind of increase the production lines for all three, or at least that's the goal. Then the biggest one, I think, is really the strategic convergence, right? That's going to pull and anchor Britain in more uh, to the Indo-Pacific. It's going to give Australia a bigger role. And the bigger point here is our alliances need to be stronger. Uh, and so this is the U.S. giving away, in many ways, the crown jewels of our technology to one of our closest allies with the idea that stronger powers that are capable and willing give us the ability to change, as you said, the balance of power and push back against uh, you know, what China has really seen as a permissive security environment out in the Indo-Pacific for a decade plus. So. Forgive me for being a bit cynical. Who's this better for, you know, um, our alliance or for um, the defense industry? I think uh, there are mutual winners here. I mean, the defense industry is obviously a big winner because they're going to be money flowing their way. But so do our jobs. I mean, in Australia, I'll tell you, they are selling this. We'll see if it materializes as a jobs program as much as a strategic play. I mean, the Aussies are spending a lot of money here. Uh, we're talking $200 billion, at least the Australian prime minister is selling this as n not only strategy, I said, but 20,000 jobs coming to South Australia. So, you know, a benefit for employment, but strategically, I think this is a win if it comes online and depending how fast it comes online, because on the deterrence equation, we don't have enough assets in the region. And we don't have enough questions that we've put in Beijing's mind. And when you have more assets flowing into the region, more force posture, which we're beginning to see actually play out of this, but some other moves that the U.S. is making as well, that increases the questions in Beijing's mind. And to this point, very little has deterred China. But this is, I think, a big play that we're making that this has the potential to raise question marks and potentially deter them from you know, more aggressive moves, be they in Taiwan, South China Sea or elsewhere. You know, I was in Australia a few years ago. I think you were still back in Australia a few years ago when I was there. And uh, I went on some radio show and uh, they were talking about this. And I said, I'll make a prediction. And that is that within the next 20 or 25 years, Australia is a more important ally of the United States than the United Kingdom. You know, that was just pandering. I was pandering to the radio audience in the hope that I would be invited back and it never happened, I might add. But, you know, th th it seems to me that if our shift in focus is to the Indo-Pacific, with deals like AUKUS, with the elevation of the Quad as kind of the central guiding alliance in that part of the world to counterbalance the Chinese, with our emphasis on other parts of the world, particularly, uh, you know, assuming we ever get past this war in Ukraine, how do you think my prediction is going to hold up? I think it's going to hold up really well, and I'm banking on it too, because I do nothing but pander myself on this score. Uh, <laughs> now, look, when we were living out there, 
the number one question I got, and this is, uh, you know, uh, when there were lots of question marks about U.S. staying power, U.S. reliability, where the heck is the U.S. going? And so our question is, you know, twofold that I would get all the time, David. Number one, like, are you guys still going to be around? And number two, come on, mate, how important are we? And I would say regularly, look, on the second question, that's kind of a ridiculous question. It's not like we keep hidden in a secret drawer somewhere, except maybe on deep state radio, you know, a rank order of our allies. But if we did, you'd obviously be climbing up the list because- Yeah, particularly since Israel's falling down the list too, at the same time as the UK. I mean, Australia's got to be pretty, pretty far up there. Trump offended Trudeau, so that eliminates Canada from the list. I mean, who else is ahead of them? I mean, there are multiple moving parts here, right? But there you go. I mean, because of their geography, because they're a democracy, and to my mind, simply because you have the combination of they are willing and increasingly capable, that's the type of ally that we want to have. And so for, yes, for AUKUS reasons, yes, for kind of democratic value reasons, but also for strategic geography reasons, you know, one of the things that's been hiding in plain sight for the last three years is the extraordinary push on both sides by both the Aussies and the U.S. to spread our forces into Northern Australia. I mean, this year on the ministerial readout that they had back in December, they said, look, we have some Marines up in Darwin. It's now hit its kind of 2,500 goal number, but before too long, expect to see U.S. Air Force assets in there, both bombers and fighters, expect to see surface ships, no less submarines. Even the Army wants it on Northern Australia. So it's a place that's importance is only going to grow when we think about geography, when we think about kind of diversifying U.S. force posture in the region. And because they're like a, you know, a, a big democracy too, we kind of have a natural affinity with them to boot. Well, I think mo- many Americans don't understand really the geography. They think Australia is kind of down in the South and in the middle of the Pacific, and that's probably as far as they think about it. But Australia is actually sort of the end of the archipelago leading down from Asia. I believe the Aboriginal Australians walked across the archipelago and made uh, small journeys via boat 60,000 years ago. So it's part of Asia in a way that, that many people don't, don't see it. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, it, when you think about when we talk about like first island chains, second island chains, like Australia is the southern anchor there too. But when Americans do think about Australia and look as someone who lived there for a number of years, as a person who flew back and forth a lot, it is a long way away. I mean, I always would explain this to friends and family that, look, if you want like a sense of how far away it is, if you need a sense for a reminder for how World War II in the Pacific played out, you get on a plane in California, you take off and you fly down for 15 and a half hours straight and you don't see anything but water and then you land in Sydney. It is a far way away. Yeah, yeah. When I was in Australia, I also noticed that there are very special views evolving in Australia towards China. Some of them, I, I thought, were kind of tinged with racism, to be honest with you. I, I, the anti-Chinese sentiment I saw was a little troubling in that regard. How does the average Australian view the rise of China? 
Well, it's they view it in a way that shifted and somewhat dramatically over the last couple of years, I would say. So, look, before we were there, I mean, when Xi Jinping was down there in 2014, they talked about an era of like goodwill and prosperity, like that, that last part mattered an enormous amount. I mean, Australia is the most trade dependent advanced economy in the world with China. Uh, I mean, at one point, as much as 40% of their outbound exports went to uh, China. So you could imagine uh, that the Chinese thought if you squeeze them economically, you would get a political effect. But for a long time, the, uh, you know, Tony Abbott, who was one of their, one of their many former PMs said, uh, if you want to understand Australia's relationship with China, it's predicated on both fear and greed. And the fear factor has kind of gone up while the greed factor has gone down a little bit in the last couple of years. I think not so much because of what's happened inside of China, bad as that is. It's not really because of what's happened in terms of Chinese foreign policy, as troubling as that might be. But really starting around 2016, 2017, it was what was happening inside of Australia and what the Chinese state was doing inside of Australia, bribing Australian politicians, buying up all Chinese language. News sources, I mean, I was teaching at the University of Sydney, and there were multiple instances of Chinese students being directed to protest, counter-protest, kind of Hong Kong or Xinjiang, and multiple instances of violence happening on campus. And so the average uh, Australian, I think, is very aware of these things. And you can kind of track this in public perceptions and polling that where there used to be like a pretty good feeling towards China, I think warm and fuzzy feelings for Xi Jinping is down to like 12% in Australia. That's a 40% decline over the last three years. I think actually he might even rate lower than Kim Jong-un at this point. So there really is a sense of danger and fear. And even though the trading relationship is important, especially while the Chinese kind of smacked the Australians and kind of put on this kind of, uh, you know, a whole rash of economically coercive acts, there is, I think, a wellspring of support to kind of beef up their own defenses. Do you, I mean, in the United States, I see this as a, a drift towards Cold War with China. I, I think it's wrong. I mean, I think that we need to have some somewhat more nuanced relationship than that, viewing them as a rival and as a competitor in some areas as opposed to as a threat. Do you see Australia tracking the same way we are? Yeah, but it's a little bit different. I mean, I do think that when you hear many Australians talk about this, I mean, they talk about increasing competition against almost every almost every area you can think about technologically security wise contestation within the political uh, sense too but there's also a sense i mean when we talk about that trading relationship that it is an important relationship that they want to find some kind of stability in how they get along with china you know there was an election in australia in may you had a labor government that's the center left as opposed to liberals the center right as an american i get this confused all the time but so the center left party came to power and on their relationship with china they had promised to not change the substance of australia's policies right i mean they were the first in the world to kind of exclude huawei out of their 5g systems they had passed countering foreign interference legislation they had supported AUKUS in opposition but what they did want to change was the tone and rhetoric of how they talked to, how they talked about China. In fact, in the first like eight or nine months that they've been in, they've managed to kind of pull off 
that trick somewhat successfully. So you've seen the Chinese being willing to meet again with their Australian counterparts. The Australians aren't as forward leaning in their language oftentimes as we are. So oftentimes they'll talk about wanting to protect themselves from coercive activities, otherwise known as China, but China never makes an appearance in official speech making. Do you think people in Australia would be willing to fight to defend Taiwan? I don't know. Polling suggests maybe, but polling suggests a lot of different things. On two different parts of that, David, I mean, on Taiwan, Taiwan is kind of a nascent and growing policy issue in Australia. Uh, Obviously, the debate has exploded here in the United States, kind of left, right, and center. In Japan, the Taiwan debate has really moved a lot. In the Philippines, it's actually starting to move. In Australia, it's just beginning to kind of eke into the public space. And so people, I think, are beginning to think about this. You know, most recent polling on uh, would you be willing to fight uh, in Taiwan? Of course, there's no caveats, no contingencies about how such a fight would break out. The polling was up over 50% for the first time. But again, I think, you know, as with everything, it's contingent upon a number of different things, how things broke out, how they fight it, how, uh, how a contingency un- unraveled. But I think that there's more recognition that a fight is brewing in general than there had been before, and there's more willingness by Australians to step up to the plate. Do you think Australia can be an effective interlocutor with other nations in the region in a way that the United States can't? Yeah, uh, I think they can, and I think we've been seeing that, particularly over the last eight or nine months. You know, for the Aussies, they were really freaked out when the Solomon Islands security deal kind of popped up between China and Solomon Islands. If again, if we're talking geographically, right, Solomon Islands, Americans hadn't really thought about it, heard about it since the Battle of Guadalcanal. It is right smack up against Australia. And it's almost an existential danger for Australians to think about a potentially hostile power having a naval base there. And I say that as backdrop because when the new government came into power, Penny Wong, their foreign minister, got on a plane, and I don't think she's come off one since she started. I mean, she's been all over the Pacific. Uh, She's wanted to make sure that China isn't stealing a march and kind of turning the security situation upside down. And they've been pretty effective. The Australian prime minister, Anthony Albanese, when he left San Diego, his first stop was Fiji. Uh, There's a new government in Fiji. And, you know, they wanted to make sure that as happened the first time around in August, there weren't a lot of concerns. The Fijian prime minister came out and said, you know what, this makes total sense and we support it. The Aussies, I think, made something like 60 phone calls uh, in the days leading up to AUKUS. The Indonesians, who had been quite negative about AUKUS, concerned about what it meant for the non-proliferation treaty, were much more neutral and balanced in what they had to say. And even the Philippines, who obviously we had a ton of challenges dealing with under Duterte, we've now turn the corner uh, with Bong Pong Marcos in a lot of ways. The security uh, alignment is really coming online, but the Aussies were in there before we were. And increasingly, the Philippines are saying that we want to work more and more with the Aussies. So yes, I think they can do a lot of things that we can't around the region. Do you think that the Australian-ASEAN relations have been uh, damaged permanently by the triumph of Michelle Yeoh over Kate Blanchett in the Best Actress Oscar? Obviously, obviously. 
They said uh, when they were in opposition, uh, that the current government, they said, look, the first thing we're going to do is appoint a, an ambassador at large to ASEAN. Uh, obviously, they didn't have to think about dealing with this Oscar contingency that they'd have to meet. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I, I think actually the best sporting actor also, his origin was in ASEAN. So, But it does emphasize in, a, in an interesting way the growing importance of the Asia-Pacific region to people in the United States and our awareness and our cultural consciousness, as well as through deals like this. And I suspect that your little corner of CSIS is going to be increasingly important with each passing year. And between AUKUS and the Quad, I, I think it's becoming institutionalized at the core of U.S. priorities. So I hope we'll have you back. I hope you'll be willing to talk to us again about these issues as they occur, not the Oscars necessarily, but perhaps some of these other issues in the months ahead. Look, uh, I'd be happy to come back and we'll pretend to be critical and both of us will lavish praise on Australia so they'll let both you and me come back and visit again soon. Yeah, I can't keep, I'm waiting for the invitation. You know, I'd like, of all the places I visit, I think I've been in 80 countries. Australia is way up high at the top of the list in terms of, of, of just being a great place to go and great people. And uh, all those reports of spiders and snakes, I, I just didn't encounter. Well, um, you just weren't there long enough, David. They're all true. Did, did you? Look, let me just tell you, before we moved there, we had our boys enrolled in a school. We got the newsletter for the school, and it had a picture of like a face-down child with a grown-up hovering over them, and it said, um, you know, Dr. Vrapnu, Vijay's mother, demonstrating how to treat a poisonous uh, spider bite. And my wife said, oh my goodness, is that what we're going into? We move into our uh, house, and day one, we uh, found redback spiders, which are the poisonous kind everywhere. So, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, I suspect your family was delighted to uh, return to Washington. Are you kidding? Uh, I think we never wanted to leave Australia. It was terrific uh, <laughs> when we were out there. But uh, everyone has toughed up uh, and can now deal with, like, the very small spiders we have here. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Well, thanks, Charles. I really appreciate it. And we'll have you back again sometime. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is The Point of the Podcast, where we'll take a break. And uh, members will be able to join us in a moment for our discussion of Moldova. For those of you who aren't members who want to be able to talk about things like that and get all of our podcasts, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. I think it's about five bucks a month, and it's certainly worth it to get discussions like this one and that one. Until then, thanks to everybody else for listening. Members, stand by.